All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in that Bible to 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27. We're going to finish out chapter 10 today. And we're in, in the middle of this series studying the book of Samuel, kind of asking the question, how is God going to bring his king out of this conflict that has been brewing in, in, a, in a time in which there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes? And so what I want to put before you today is that God in his grace and in his mercy gives the people this divine clarity. He, he gifts his people with a, a, with a clear choice of king and a clear understanding of what that king is to do in, in his ruling. And so we're going to look at those two things, the clarity of choice and the clarity of rule. I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we will get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, starting in 1 Samuel 10, verse 17. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? But the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. And Saul also went to his own home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But... Some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would dig our ears open, that you would unveil our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to know you in the power of your resurrection, Jesus that you would help us understand this text before us. Lord, without your spirit at work right now, these are just words on a page and words ringing through the ear. We need you, spirit, to apply these words to our, words to our hearts and our minds so that we might know them, that we might be transformed by them, that we might hear of the goodness and the grace that comes from your divine clarity, clearly showing us who you are, clearly showing us our need, and then clearly sending your anointed one to come save us, your own son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would give us Um, a generous measure of your spirit that we might understand the role of the law in the Christian life, that we might understand our own need for a Savior, that we might understand uh, our need for instruction in your law. Lord, that we might understand that blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. 
Father, these are hard words in our culture because we want to do what we want when we want, but your word and your spirit bind us up so that we do um, what is for your glory and our joy. Help us do that even this morning. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. I want to invite you to make a, a, a picture in your mind. Uh, a beautiful, clear day. I want you to picture this beautiful, clear summer day, blue skies, no clouds. There's some trees. The, the wind is blowing lightly through the trees, and you're on the bank. You're on the bank of a, a creek or a lake or something, and you're looking out at that water. It's this beautiful, clear day. The warm sun is, is, is beating down on you. You feel the grass in your toes. You hear the grasshoppers kind of chirping and buzzing all around you, and you see that water, and it's muddy water. It's not clear water, and you're not just there to look at it. You're going to get down into it, and you're not getting down in that muddy water. You're not just getting down in there to swim, but you're going to start taking your hand, and you're going to start poking your hand in deep holes in the bank. You're going to take your head below that muddy, dirty water where you can't see anything, and you're blindly going to stick your hand into a hole in which there might be a cottonmouth. There might be a snapping turtle, or there might be a catfish. Now, what I'm describing to you, what I'm inviting you to picture in your mind is the practice of noodling, made famous by the the Discovery Show Hillbilly Handfishing several years ago, which you can still find clips of on YouTube. But the process of noodling is going and finding a hole in this dark, muddy water where you go down underneath it and you just blindly stick your digits in there, wiggle them around, and hope a catfish bites you. Because that's how you're going to get dinner that night. It's, this, it's all of my worst fears wrapped up in one event. Being it, like, it's, I, I can't even imagine doing it. I can't. But people love it. And, it. and it exploded in popularity during the Depression because that's how people put food on their table. They, they waded into this unclear, dirty, dangerous water where they might get bitten by in something dangerous in order to find food for their family. Now, this is not a fishing book. 1 Samuel is not Jonah. But what I want you to think about is the fact that when you're in water that you can see in, it's one experience. If you're in your pool, if you're in a nice clear lake or the nice clear ocean, but if you're in water where you can't see, it's a whole other experience. There's all kinds of fears and anxieties that you have because you don't know what's there. In many ways... Our lives are like swimming through muddy rivers because sin has a tendency to cloud our vision. Sin has a tendency to darken our hearts and our minds. Sin has a way, either our own sin or the sin in the world or the sin in other people, it just messes with what we see both actually and spiritually. But God in his grace and his mercy has shown a light into the darkness of our hearts and our minds and has enlightened our hearts and his minds through his spirit so that we might see his face, see his son Jesus, our Savior, and be rescued from the darkness and depths of that mucky, dirty sin in which we swim around in all the time. And so I want to really draw out of these verses from 1 Samuel 10 how the Lord brings this wonderfully robust clarity to a time in which Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, was raised up and there was no frequent vision before Samuel. Remember, this is in the days when the judges ruled and everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. There was no frequent vision 
until Samuel came along. And so here, God is so clearly and robustly and profoundly giving his people a choice for their king and how that king is to rule. Looking in verse 17, we see this clarity of choice. Samuel called the people back together to the Lord at Mizpah. And if you recall, the last time they were at Mizpah, that was in, in 1 Samuel 7. And they had gathered there, and the Philistines had raised up, and they were going to come attack them. And so the people were afraid. They didn't know what was going to happen. And so they went to Samuel and said, pray to the Lord to deliver us. And so the Lord delivered them with a thunderclap and scattered the Philistines. And so because they were recognizing and remembering that until this point, Yahweh has helped us, they set up that stone near Mizpah, that Ebenezer, that stone of the Lord's help. And so here again, we see the people gathered at this place place where God has met them and has protected them and has delivered them. And so after whatever indefinite period of time that had passed between Saul's private anointing, Samuel once again calls the people together at at Mizpah. And what he does is this beautiful rehearsal of divine history. Look at what he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the covenant God. This is Yahweh. This is the God who has acted on behalf of his people, who has established this relationship with them. He says, I brought Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered from you, you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And so when Samuel declares the word of the Lord, he is emphatically, and it's just very emphatic in the, in the original Hebrew, that Yahweh is the one who has acted. That, and you could even go back further. Yahweh is the one who plucked Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, you're going to be a great nation. A mighty nation. Kings are going to come from you. And so that people, Yahweh saved from Egypt. Yahweh plucked them up. Yahweh brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And when there was no king, God would raise up judges and empower those judges to deliver his people from the nations around them, oppressing them. Samuel's rehearsing the history and he's showing that Yahweh has clearly chosen, has acted, has delivered, and has brought his people here. And then there's this terrifying contrast in verse 19. But Today, you have rejected your God. You have said to him, give us a king like all the other nations. And again, that's an emphatic grammatical you in the Hebrew. Yahweh did the saving. Y'all people did the rejecting. And so the irony here is that God had planned for them to have a king at some point. We saw that in Deuteronomy 17. But because they did it with this sinful motion, uh, sinful motivation to be like all the other nations, that their king would go and fight for them, that was tantamount to them rejecting Yahweh. And so here, Samuel gathers them back together at this place where God has delivered them time and time again. And yet they are sitting here before the Lord, actively rejecting them. What are they going to do? Present yourselves before the Lord, Samuel says. Now, kids, I want to pause here really quick and ask a very important question to you kids out in the congregation. If I put before you a table, and on this table was a cake and a pie, what are you picking? You get one. What do you think? Pie. All right, Anna. Cake. All right, one. uh, Eli. Or Isaac John. I mean, Isaac John. Cake. All right, what about you, Amelia? Pie. Pie. Aaron? Pie. Pie. August? Cake. Piper? 
I, did anybody keep track of what the score is? Four, it's three to four? Okay, um, Eli. Cake. Cake. Four to four? Oh, my gosh. We're going to stop there. Okay, Elsie, break our tie. Pie wins out. Pie wins out. Okay. Now, you, I, I didn't tell you what kind of cake it was. I didn't tell you what kind it was. But I, I bet in your mind you had concocted your favorite cake and your favorite pie, and you chose between those two things. When we have a choice like that, it's based on our preferences, right? What we like to eat, what we like to taste. I prefer pie generally because it seems like a more reasonable dessert, but we can have that conversation later. <laughs> But a lot of times when we make choices, it's based on just preference. Now, you don't have to answer this, kids, but I want you to imagine there was five to four, right? And if you people that all picked pie and, the, and, and, and you won, then all the kids that wanted cake had to eat pie, they would be somewhat disappointed probably. Maybe not because they're still getting dessert. But theoretically, if you're not getting what you prefer, that's a recipe for disappointment. So here, what God does when his people are gathered at Mizpah. When they are gathered at Mizpah and he's going to clearly display his choice for a king, he's going to do it in such a way that is public, that is so above reproach that they cannot possibly reject or complain about this process. He is going to be chosen by lots. And that is what we see here in verses 20 and 21 and so on. Tribes were brought forward and lots were cast. And so the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. Now, Lot's were these, we don't know exactly what they were. Something like dice, something like small stones. The word is related to the Arabic word for small stone. We don't know exactly what they were. But we do know from a survey of the Bible that Lot's were a thing used to make decisions for God's people. In Leviticus 16, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a lot was lots were cast to figure out what's the scapegoat going to be, what's the goat that we slaughter, and what's the goat that we send out into the wilderness. And then when God saved Israel out of Egypt and set them up in the promised land, they cast lots to determine which family, which tribe got which area. And so you might be wondering at this point, well, why on earth would that kind of stuff be left up to chance? Why would they metaphorically, as it were, roll the dice on that? But see, there's this rich understanding of God's people that in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast by men, but every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as chance in the the Christian worldview because our God is sovereignly directing and ruling all things by his providential will. And so when Israel casts lots, they are trusting that this is the choice that Yahweh is making. There's no disputing. It's not the people from Benjamin voted for Saul and the people from Judah are voting for somebody else. No, this is Yahweh's choice. And to cast lots in this public forum where they are gathered together at this important site of Mizpah, this is God saying, this is my choice. This is my chosen one. This is the one who was privately anointed and is now being publicly declared as the one who will lead you. And then I want you to hear I'm going to say a few more Hebrew words in this sermon. That's not to make you think that I'm some smart Hebrew scholar. It's really for rhetorical effect. Um, but I want, you to, I want you to look at that word that's connected to the lots. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. The clan of the Matrites was taken. Saul was, was taken. The Hebrew word there is um, Yiklakid. The tribe of Benjamin was Yiklakid. 
the clan of the Matrites, Yiklakid, Saul, son of Kish, Yiklakid. That, that word most of the time in the Old Testament has to do with a military conquest of a city or an outpost. It's this violent word of overthrowing. And so, again, even grammatically in the narrative structure, we're seeing that this is not human will working here. This is divine, sovereign choice where God is willing this to happen for his people. There is no chance where God's will is not going to happen. And so God providentially chooses the leader that Israel has sinfully asked for. And again, a little bit of literary irony. The name Saul is Hebrew for asked for. So the Lord is giving to whom the people asked for. And so, again, we see this unfolding that God is at work here and his will will not be thwarted. And as I say that, the very next line in the story is the Saul, Saul son of Kish was taken by Lot, but he was nowhere to be found. So then you have to ask yourself this question, well, hold on. If God's will is at work and he cannot be thwarted, why do we not know where Saul is? Is God's will somehow failed? No. Because then the people, again, go to the Lord, not using a lot this time, but but inquiring of the Lord, submitting to the Lord, asking Yahweh to do something only Yahweh can do. Where is, is there any man left among you? Have you made a mistake? What is going on? And then God, in his sovereign mercy and grace, gives them that clear direction. He is among the baggage. The chosen king is hiding among the baggage. Now, again, This word picture should paint some irony before you because, again, in the last chapter, Saul was sent out on this mission by his father to find the lost donkeys, and they could not be found. But we remember, but remember from when we studied that passage last week, it was never about the donkeys. It wasn't about the donkeys. It was God sending Saul out on a mission to meet Samuel and therefore be anointed as king. And so, in the same kind of ironic way, Saul cannot be found by anyone but Yahweh. And so the people come and they take him. And when they take him up, there's great irony in this. He's trying to crouch down and hide amongst the baggage. We don't know exactly what that stuff is, but he's trying to hide among the supplies. And when he stands up, he's a head taller than everybody else. And so the one who's bigger and more physically imposing than anyone else in the, in the, in the Israelites, he is trying to hide and make himself small and make himself scarce. But God will not let that happen. Samuel takes Saul and says, look at him. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And what do the people shout that they still shout today? Long live the king. I want you to notice what Samuel doesn't say. What Yahweh doesn't say. He never says, this is your king. The people say that. This is the people's king, but Yahweh is still the king in his own mind because that is how he designed this. He is the one and only sovereign, and this is the one the people have asked for. And so the people, um, not Yahweh, declare long live the king. So this is a framework that they're living in. Now, here's where we have to actually kind of do some, okay, we don't live in a monarchy. We're we're not going to have our... Our leaders chosen by lot. We live in this constitutional republic where we actually have to cast votes and have electors and that whole thing, and it's election year. So what does this have to do with us? We don't live in Israel. We don't live in this kind of theocratic monarchy. We don't have to wrestle with this so much from a political standpoint. We have to wrestle with this from a personal standpoint. Because what we see in this passage is the clarity of two things. 
the clarity that the Bible has regarding human nature and the clarity that the Bible tells us about how God relates to that human nature. And the first bit of thing that we have to look at is that, my goodness, people have always been, from the beginning of time, so incredibly fickle. You want one thing one minute and another thing the next minute. And then another thing the next minute. And so often, those things that you want are not things that are necessarily good for you. Uh, parents, I'm sure you've, you've, you've thought about it this week um, with, with your own children. Like, man, when they're older, they're going to get it. They'll understand why I'm telling them, no, you can't have eight pounds of candy a day for breakfast. Like, you're going to get it when you're older, you know. And, and, and when your kids do something wrong, it's kind of, it's not, sometimes it's not that hard to show them grace and mercy because they don't know any better, right? Like, they're just being kids. But then when you get older, when we get older, and we do the same stuff, and we do the same, we make those same choices that are bad for us, when we imbibe the things that aren't good for us physically or mentally or emotionally, we should know better, right? But what the Bible's doing is it's painting this picture of the human heart that is deceitful and wicked and sick above all things. We want that which is going to kill us. We in our sin nature, in that clouded, murky, dark, mucky sin nature, the human heart so desperately longs for things that are going to kill it, that God said, no, this isn't good for you. And I'm sure, I know it because you live in a fallen world. I know you've done something this week that you've regretted. We all, all of us have. I know you've looked at something. You've, you've wasted your time with watching too much something. You've, you've, you've been envious of something. You've been angry and you've raised your voice and you've said cruel things in writing or, or to somebody's face or behind somebody's back. I know you have because I have. And human nature doesn't change. We all live in this fallen world. And so what the Bible, what we have to wrestle with and why we confess our sin together every week is because the human heart is so fickle. And it is so deceitful. And it is so desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, our God does. And our God covenants with us. And our God says, even though your heart is fickle, Yahweh is faithful. I saved Israel from Egypt. I delivered you from the nations. I set you up as a treasured possession. I saved you to be a people from my own possession. God will be faithful in spite of our fickleness and our fallenness because he is faithful to himself. He is faithful to his covenant promises and his covenant promises. If you look to my son, the true king, the anointed one, you will be delivered from your sin. And so because of the true King Jesus, not this earthly King Saul, and not even his greater King David, we're not saved by those things. We're not saved by our ability to abstain from doing things that would embarrass us if other people found out. We're saved by a faithful God who decisively acted in time-space history to save a people for himself. That's you and that's me if we believe in Jesus. And so when we read God's word and we read this story... We need to understand that God's word is emphatically clear. We are fallen, fickle people, prone to wander, prone to reject and rebel against God. But our God is so faithful to forgive us over and over and over and over and over again. Do you see in the pages of this story how faithful your God is? It's for you. Now, not only does God clearly choose 
choose a king for himself, chosen a people for himself, for his own possession, he then clearly outlines and lays out how that king is going to operate. And the first thing that you and I need to notice as we read this passage is, this is going to be a king unlike the other kings. This is going to be a king who is not wholly sovereign. This is a king who is going to be a vice regent, who is underneath the one who is truly sovereign. And so when Saul is chosen, look what he doesn't do. We are so used to people winning elections and giving victory speeches and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And when we live in this election year, we're going to hear over and over again about what this candidate's going to do and what that candidate's going to do. And everybody's promising about what they're going to do. But here in chapter 10, verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel, not the new king, Samuel, the prophet of God, the mouthpiece mouthpiece of God, told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Now, uh, the rights and duties of of the kingship in in the Hebrew, um, that's actually one word, and it's the word mishpat. And this is kind of a weird place to translate it this way. It's not translated this way in the rest of the Old Testament. Normally it's translated the justice uh, or, or the righteousness, uh, the, the mishpat. And so the, the justice of the kingdom, the justice of the kingship, um, the, the mishpat of the kingdom. And the thing that we need to know is that the first time that word comes up is in conjunction with Abraham. And what that means is when Abraham is believing the promises of God, even though he's surrounded by pagan idolaters, he's doing the thing that God wants him to do. He's having faith in Yahweh. And so mishpat of the kingdom is not doing whatever the king wants. Mishpat of the kingdom is doing what God wants because he is the true and the only sovereign. You can't just, as one commentator said, you can't just go mishpotting whatever you want. You have to mishpot Yahweh's mishpat, um, what Dale Ralph Davis says. And so God's word gives us this very clear framework for how, we, for how the king is supposed to, to respond. Um, not to do his own will, but rather the will of Yahweh. Now, kids, another very, very important question. Very important question. When you go to a playground, what's your favorite thing to play on? Graham. The slides. Aaron. The slides. Anna. Climbing, well, you have a climbing, you have a bougie playground. Um, Brooklyn, monkey bars, I like those too. Anybody else? Playground, kids, favorite thing to play on? Okay, not as emphatic as the pie cake debate, but that's all right. We'll try again next week. Now, it would be terrible to go to a playground um, and there was just nothing there. If you just had to go to an empty field, yeah, you could play tag or something, but eventually you want something to climb on, like a climbing wall. You know, you want something that you can really kind of get into and understand, like, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to go on the slide, on the monkey bars, on the climbing wall. We live in this age, I'll call it the post-gospel-centered age, um, where to talk about the law of God is icky. We don't don't like it. We want to talk about grace. We don't want to talk about law. But what we see here in that God is giving a clarity of rule, God, Samuel is reaffirming the law of God that 
binds the life of the king. It is like the it's like the jungle gym that he's supposed to climb on. God is saying, "Here's the playground, Saul." Here's the playground, my people. You go in here and you have a good time. This is a framework for you. This is how you mishpat the mishpat of the kingdom. This is how you live as my king and my people. God is so clearly giving this kind of black and white understanding of, if you're going to be my people because I saved you, I plucked you up, I chose you, I chose you and I delivered you, and if you're going to be those people that I chose, this is how you live. And so not only... Is there this kind of verbal declaration of this is how I want the king to work? This is how the king is supposed to act. It's actually written down and bound up in a written word. Samuel writes this down in the scroll. Because remember, what was the king supposed to do from Deuteronomy 17? The king is supposed to copy the law, write out in longhand form of the copy of God's law, because that is the rule for life of God's people in that time. And so Samuel reminds Saul that this is the case, and I think probably writes down most of Deuteronomy 17, rolls that up in the scroll, and sets it before the Lord. Now, that means very specifically that goes in by the Ark of the Covenant. This is not just words written on a paper. These are the divine words of the divine sovereign who said, if you are going to be my people, this is then how you live. You cannot mishpat your own mishpat. You can't get horses for yourself. You can't raise up for yourself an army of concubines and people to go take over the world. You have to be a king that I'm telling you to be. You cannot be a king like all the other nations. Laid up in the Lord. So the power to rule does not come from physical might, despite the fact that Saul is very tall. It's not going to come from military might, even though God sends men of valor with him uh, back to his home. It's not going to come from uh, political machinations and treaties with other nations. The power to rule comes from Yahweh himself. His choice, his framework, his clarity is a gift to this people to know how they are to live in this time. And so once This is publicly declared. Samuel sends everyone home. And notice what he does. Notice what Saul does even. In his first act of the publicly anointed king, Saul's obedient. He goes home to Gibeah just like everybody else. And God sends with him men of valor um, whose hearts have been touched by the Lord the same way that that Saul's heart was touched by the Lord. And so the implication that we have to work out now is, okay, then what is my relationship to the law of God as a Christian? That's a complicated question. Many people who are much smarter than me have spilled gallons of ink over thousands of pages to kind of flesh this out. And if you're really, and and I'm not going to do the whole conversation justice right now, but if you're interested in in more of this, you can talk to me, Brian, John, Ed, uh, Peter. You know, we all have our own opinions on uh, what the relationship with uh, between God's law and the Christian is. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to think of the law as a servant and not a savior. We have this icky relationship. We don't want people to tell us what to do. But I noticed this the other day. Um, you read the Bible differently when in different seasons of life. When I was in college, I loved reading the parts of the New Testament that just said, do this. You know, love one another. Submit to one another. Uh, encourage one another. Sh- show hospital. Like I, lo- I underlined all those commands from the Pauline epistles telling you what to do. Because I understood that. It was much easier to hear, do this, don't do this. 
It was much easier to just understand, this is what God wants me to do, this is what God wants me to avoid. It's much easier to understand that, even though it's not easy to do that. And so the law in the Christian life is to serve us, it's to give us a framework for this is what a good, blessed life looks like. That's why Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. When we think about God's law, we should not think about it as this thing that is just trying to keep us from having fun. Like this thing that we have to do, and if we don't do it, if we don't do it, it's going to be fun, but if we do it, life's going to be terrible. That is a bad way to think about the law of God. The law is painting for us a picture. It's building us a playground in which we can play. But at the same time, at the same time, it cannot save you. The Bible is robustly clear that the law has a purpose, and that is to point you to Jesus. That is to remind you that you actually can't do all of these things. God in his kindness and his mercy and his holiness demands complete perfection from us. And the law paints that picture, but we cannot do it. So in, in the Reformed tradition, we believe that one of the uses of the law is that it drives us to the feet of Jesus. It drives us to our Savior who actually can save. Jesus doesn't just say, do what I've done and emulate me to the best of, my ability, or best of your ability. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and, and are troubled, and, and you will find rest. And I will take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus is the Savior that the law never could be. So while we, we can relate to the law in a healthy way, we can understand that this is instruction for how life works best. We know that we cannot be saved by the law. We have to be saved by the one who came to deliver us from our sin, which is aroused by the law. Paul says in Romans that he wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said to covet. And so the law is always going to be painting us, uh, painting a picture of our own sin and pushing us towards the Savior who actually can deliver us. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because in that mucky, dirty, unclear water, when you're, when you're blindly shoving your hand in holes, you don't know what's in there, the best case scenario in, in that point is the fish actually bites you. So your end result is you want to get bit by a fish. And then what you have to do is you have to extricate yourself from the water. Because you'll be down there underwater and the murky thing can't do anything, and you're going to be fighting a 50, 60, 70, 80 pound fish that's now latched onto your hand. And it's going to be not sitting there quietly taking it like a champ. He's going to be fighting you. He's going to be trying to pull you back into his hole, pull you, de- pull you down. So the problem in the Christian life is not just that there is a lack of clarity because of sin, but there is a war in your heart and your mind and a resistance because of your sinful nature to what God's law says and to what God's word calls you to. There's not just murkiness and unclarity. There is a fight for your life. And you got to pull that fish up out of the water. But the good news of the gospel is not that you're in this fight for your life and you got to, by your own effort, got to get up out of there, get up out of that hole, get a hold of something on the bank and yank that fish up there. No, the point is, God's word is clear. There's going to be opposition to the kingdom. 
But there's going to be an overcoming Savior that's going to deliver you. Look at these, these last few verses. So Saul also went to his home at Gebeah with men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Worthless fellows, sons of Belial. That same word was used of Eli's sons in chapter 2. Men who had no regard for God's word. God is being so resolutely clear with us that he is putting his king over his kingdom, but there will always be those who oppose it. Think from the beginning, the serpent said, did God really say? And then Cain and Abel, there was a godly line from Seth and an ungodly line that grew and sin and death and people died. And so there has always been a people of the child of promise and a people of the serpent. So it should come to no surprise then for us that in our own lives, there's not just doubt and discouragement about God's word, but that there's this war that says we don't want that. I don't want that in my life. I can't do that. I don't even want to hear it. There's a war in you because the seed of the serpent, that indwelling sin, still exists in you until Jesus comes back to take you home to glory. And that should not discourage you. It should not discourage you. What it should do is is that it should remind you that you have a faithful Savior who is going to deliver you. And it's not up to you. Because you have a king who entered into the darkness of the muck of a fallen world and came into the darkness and the depths of your own rebellious, murky heart. God stuck his hands out and was nailed to the cross so that you might be ripped out of that hole that you were hiding in and set up not as like somebody that just kind of scraped into the kingdom, but somebody that set up and said, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the people in whom I am well pleased. Why? Not because they earned it, but because from the foundation of the world, before time existed, God had already made a choice. God had already made a choice. And he said, we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, one set apart, ones who have been guaranteed an inheritance, guaranteed a place, guaranteed reconciliation with the Father, with the one who made us, with the one whom we have rejected, the one whom we have said in our fickleness, I don't want you, but the one who is faithful and said, you are mine because of Jesus. And so God promised it. God painted a picture for it in here, and then God did it through his son, Jesus, so that we might be sons and daughters of the king. So be of good courage, Christians. Jesus said, I've come to bring not peace but a sword. And there's going to be division because of him. And we who belong to him belong. But there will be many who say, don't, didn't I do all this in your name? And he said, I never knew you. So don't, don't you worry. There's going to be conflict until he comes back. But be of good courage. If you believe in your heart and confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, faithful God that saves his people despite their unfaithfulness and their rebellion and their rejection. Father, help us to have a better understanding of our own fickle hearts that 
that are so deceitful and, and easily deceived and, and so quickly run away from you and, and run after our own, our own mishpat, our own sense of what's right and wrong, our own sense of what's, what we want to do. Father, help us to be gracious with each other and ourselves that your grace is new every morning and that your mercy is without end. Father, we know that we're, your law demands perfection and we are just so, we fall so short of that. But Lord, we know that you have given us perfection through your son, Jesus. That our sin is forgiven, our shame is covered, and our status is secure because of Jesus on the cross dying in our place when we deserved it. So Father, help us to understand your faithful goodness. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.